A post-war baby. Sue was born in 1945. With the same rations and rubble as the families around her, she saw her London upbringing as average. Her father wore a bowler hat to work, and her mother stayed home to keep house. But even the smallest differences in attitudes and approach can change a child's path. Encouraged to follow her love of languages, and gifted with multiple math failures, Sue discovered new worlds. Until this interview, she had never stopped to reflect on the impact of it all. She knew she was different, but what made her go one way when most of her classmates went the other? Today, you'll hear the first part of her story, all the things that added up to her big move. In part two, she'll reflect on a lifetime abroad and the balancing of it all, from friendships to partnerships, parenting, and more. Let's go ahead and start the conversation. I'm Megan Kitchen, and this is Balancing Cultures. Your name has been on my potential guest list since I was brainstorming even having a podcast. Really? Oh, since day one. Oh, how flattering! Thank you. <laughs> when I thought of balancing cultures, you are one of the people who pops into my head. Oh, that's how remarkable. Okay. Oh, that's great. Yes. Well, I remember you very clearly. Because, well, I think clear is the word because you've always struck me as someone with an extremely clear mind. Me? Yeah. Oh, yeah. A very, very clear mind and a very articulate way of sharing what's going on in your mind with everybody else. Clarity is really the, it's, it's your, it should be your motto, really, I think, really. It's very interesting, very interesting. You juggle the abstract with the practical very, very skillfully. It's very, very interesting to watch. I appreciate you saying that. I'll let listeners know the behind the scenes, how we know each other. Otherwise, they'll think, how does Sue know so much about Megan? <laughs> So we actually, the little behind the scenes thing is we met on the international speech and debate coaches circuit. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And so we were both coaches of speech and debate teams from international schools. And yeah, we met at tournaments. And in a way, you were my mentor because you'd been doing it so much longer than me. And I came fresh on the scene. Mm -hmm. And you're just so patient and kind and wise. <laughs> and so, yeah, I thought when I was coming up with this podcast, I knew I wanted to talk to people at different stages of their balancing. Yeah. And when I thought, who's someone who's been doing it a, a little longer than the rest of us? Oh, yeah, much longer. <laughs> I thought of you. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because, well, I've been... <laughs> Yeah, I've been living abroad for a long time. We'll, we'll go into that. But I have to say, um, I never thought of it as balancing cultures as such. I think your project is so interesting. And I've listened to not quite all, but most of the previous episodes. And you're a very, very astute interviewer. You bring out the best in people. It's very, that's a gift. It's very good. Hmm. I feel very safe in your hands. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> what I think I never saw it as balancing anything. Because that sounds um, sort of deliberate, you know, and uh, thought out. And I think even now, I think I sort of wing it nearly every day. Uh, I really have never thought about this before. It came to me that 
balancing is one thing, but probably when I now think about it, which I never have, probably I think um, I see the experience of living in a different country as sort of being in the center of a Venn diagram with all manner of overlapping circles. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably the way I have unconsciously seen it, but I didn't see it as a balance because that sounds like, um, as I said, something rather deliberate and, and reflected upon rather than experienced. And um, I and it sounds a bit definitive as well. So, oh, I've got this. I know how to do this. And it's not like that. It's every day is 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 a different um, is a different challenge. I think so. But I really I applaud your your whole project. I think it's incredibly interesting. And I look forward to listening to the ones I haven't yet heard. So. Well, I appreciate your thoughts on what the title brings out for you. I truly appreciate that you said Venn diagram because if you look at the logo, yes, that I've created, yes, yes. That is exactly what I was thinking was these overlapping circles. And for me, balancing is active. It is still in process. Yes, yes. And I think balancing can be not so deliberate. It can be something that you even do without knowing. Yeah. You know, we do it as we walk down the street. I don't think of left, then right, then left, then right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I am doing it. Yeah, yeah. More instinctive and intuitive with, with practice, I think, as well. Yeah. And so I think, you know, there's that moment, and we'll get to it in your story, when you first either move abroad or move into a different environment or have that shock of something different from yourself. Yeah. Yes. But then over time and over experience, through your experiences, it does become more natural. Not that you become unnatural, but it you think about it less. Yeah, it's part of you. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, I think maybe we should let the audience know at least some, some details about how long you've been doing all this. So I hope you don't mind. I'm, I'm going to start by asking your age yes. and where you're calling from. Uh, my age is 75. I was born uh, a few weeks after the end of the war in 1945, and I was born in London, in Greater London. Okay. And I'm calling you from Brussels, where I have lived since 1969. Now, without giving too much away, we'll do a little foreshadowing, and, and I'll ask the question, do you think you've lived what we would call a, quote, average life for someone who was born around the same time as you, so post-war, and in the same place as you, so Britain, UK, England, maybe even London. Uh, no, I don't. And it seems rather pathetic that it's taken me 75 years to realise this, but it was only when I saw your question that I thought about it. Um, no, I don't. And there is a very simple reason for that. It's that at school, I happened to be very good at foreign languages. I just, I'd never heard anything but English, unlike the kids that we teach or that I used to teach who have, some have grown up with three, four, five languages and hearing another one outside the home. In London, in the 40s, the 50s, uh, you never heard anything but English. And there was no foreign language taught until you were 12. Um, but I just sort of took to, I, th I think it was partly the, the noise of it rather than the meaning. 
I remember um, I had piano lessons when I was a little girl, and I remember being much more excited each time we came up with a new Italian musical term than by <laughs> than by anything to do strictly with music. You know, rallentando and uh, pianissimo. And I thought, oh wow, you know, these are these are words that sound so exciting. I wonder what they can possibly mean. Um, but of course, nobody spoke another language, and nobody used another language. You never. Well, we didn't have a television, so we never even heard it on the radio, except for the odd German thing with, with a report from the war. But once I started learning languages, I started with French and then learned Spanish in school and then learned a couple of others. But once that happened, I just wanted to go and speak it every day with people who spoke it naturally. And my first opportunity to do so was in uh, 1960. I was 15. And um, th this is where the sort of branching out begins. Were you, or would you say, you were born into a traditional family for that time and place, meaning they fit the mold for customs and values of people in that culture? Yes, I would. And I found that very interesting in your list of possible guidelines. Yes, I, I would think so. Um, they were both obviously Londoners. Um, my father was a, um, he was a government scientist. He was a an electrical engineer, and he spent the war devising ways to mess up the Germans' radar so that they would drop bombs where there was nobody underneath. He was away most of the time. My mother never knew where he was or how long he was going to be away for, and he never, ever spoke about it. Hmm. That was really quite interesting. Very recently, uh, in fact, when do you remember when The Imitation Game came out? Yes, such a good movie. Well, at the time... <laughs> without knowing, my father was actually working on the Colossus, which was the precursor to, well, it was the actual computer thing, the huge computer thing um, that enabled the Enigma code to be broken. That was when my sister and I have just one sister who's younger than I am. Um, that's when we found out that our father was actually involved in this thing. And then a few photographs came out of the team working on it. And there he was. But we never knew anything about it before. Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's funny, isn't it? But um, no, so my my mother never worked outside the home once she had me. She had been a legal secretary. For the time, she was a very unusually independent-minded woman. She enjoyed keeping house. She enjoyed cooking. She enjoyed bringing us up. And she didn't have any great intellectual pursuits, but she was a very steely sort of person with her own views. You know, the only two ways of doing anything, her way and the wrong way, you know, whatever it, whatever it was, you know. <laughs> I understand that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was always aware that she was more strong-minded than my mother, than my friend's mothers. Mm. Everybody got on fine, but she did stand out from that point of view. And she was certainly always being, encouraged us to, to do what we wanted to do. And she was, well, both of my parents were very encouraging all the way along as regards schooling and so forth. But so that was why when I had the opportunity to go to France, not many people were given that opportunity because perhaps you don't know, but and there are only a few places in Britain where it's still the case. But at that time, uh, when children reached the age of 11, they had to take an exam called the 11 plus. The whole country did. And uh, about nine or 10 percent of the students went to something called a grammar school for their secondary studies, which was academic. And everybody else went to a different kind of school. Um, and I happened to pass that exam, and that's why I went into that particular channel. My sister did not pass, and she went into the other channel. But what I'm hearing in kind of the foundation of your story with your parents and your childhood is you started by saying, yes, I was born into a traditional family. Yes, yes. But then you did not describe a traditional family to me. 
<laughs> traditional in that we lived in in the, in the suburbs with everybody else and father yeah. went out to work and you know with a bowler hat and, and a briefcase and came back again so I didn't know anybody who was in private education we all went to public school yeah in, in the in the American sense not the British sense you know we, we jumped we all jumped through the same hoops because you have to remember this was just after the war London had been completely flattened you know we played on bomb sites we had rationing for nine years after the end of the war food rationing I mean, nobody was hungry, but you couldn't, whether you could afford something or not was immaterial because you couldn't get it unless you had, you know, the right coupons for it. So it was a very um, sober life and a very uh, limited life, really. So if we perhaps had more resources, um, then perhaps we might have branched out and done something differently. But you couldn't. You couldn't. Mm. You know, it was very much a life in black and white, basically. And, and conformity was, was everything because they'd all been through a war. And, um, you know, they were just kind of picking themselves up and licking their wounds. And, you you know, you weren't expected to, to kick over the traces. You were expected to get your head down, work hard and do what you could. Yet your mother was someone who was not afraid to have an opinion. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yes. <laughs> so I think in a way, as you talk about her and you talk about your father, mm-hmm. I hear that they laid a path for you. Yeah to break break the mold in a way and to think of yourself not as just someone who jumps through hoops and does what everyone else does. Yeah, I think they were offering me, well, my mother certainly, she wanted me to have opportunities more than she had had because of her own circumstances. So then we can carry on with your story. So yeah. you said you go to France. When is this? This is in 1960. We had moved out of London to um, the countryside near Oxford. I went, had to go to a different school. My father had to open a radio station. No, you won't remember it. But when the Russians launched satellites and the Sputniks, um, it was the job of the de- government department he was working for to track them. So it was a special station for tracking satellites. And because he was an electrical, electrical engineer with all the experience that he had during the war, he was heading this station. So we had to leave London and move out to the country. And I was, of course, extremely resentful for a while, but I was lucky. The school was a good school, and I was very happy there. So, And languages were the thing to do. You know, if you were good at maths and science, well, it, they didn't really have provision for that. You, it was inconvenient to want to do those things to any higher level. So I was fine. I was on the languages and arts side. And, and then where do we go from there? Uh, and then, uh, I, so I spent the first summer in France with my pen friend, who's still a good friend. Um, and the second summer there, and then the third summer, which was like between my 11th and 12th grade, I went to Spain to brush up my Spanish, and then I did my um, my A-levels, and I got good results, and then I was accepted to Westfield College, which is in London University, <laughs> but um, it's so funny how things work out. Um, you probably remember my tearing my hair and trying to add things up during the tournament. <laughs> I'm so useless at maths. It, I really am useless at maths. And um, at the age of 16, so at the end of 10th grade, uh, they changed the name of it now, but we had to do something called O-levels, and you did it in separate subjects. You could do 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. I did, I think, 11. And I was really good results in everything except for maths and failed it. And um, so I took it again in the um, November of 11th grade and failed it with even worse marks. And I did it again in the June of 11th grade. (laughs) Then, and my last shot was the November of my final year, 
And um, I failed it again. So that's a record to fail O-level maths four times. There aren't many people who can boast of this. And <laughs> the result, it, it set back my university applications for a year because I couldn't apply to university unless I had what they called an unrelated subject. Um, the irony was that the only university in the UK that did not require an unrelated subject, because you, you probably know that they do three A-levels, basically, in the British system. It's still the same now. Uh, so it's in much more depth than the IB would be, which is obvious. But they all universities all required an unrelated subject. So if you wanted to go and do physics or medicine, you had to have something on the arts side. London University was the only one that did not require an unrelated subject. And I got a place there. So I didn't actually need to stay on into the, a third, like a 13th grade. I didn't actually need to. But I didn't know that until the, I got the acceptance letter. So the minute I got the acceptance letter, we said, right, well, we will, I will, I will leave school because there's nothing else to do. And I will go to France for nine months. I was just 18 at the time. And this was, so this was actually living and working at the age of 18 in another country. And that, that was very unusual for the time. I was about to ask, as you're saying, you know, I went to France for this summer and I went to Spain to brush up on my Spanish and now I'm moving to France to work as an 18-year-old. Yeah. I'm thinking even nowadays yeah. that would be considered unusual yes. to have that much experience as a young person. Yes, yes, yes. It was a it was a kind of accidental gap year in a sense, you know, because I hadn't if I hadn't failed the maths exam, I would have gone I would have applied earlier and gone straight to university, but it all worked out for the best because what I did when I was in France, I, 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 I started off working in a, in a Catholic boarding school, which was absolutely frightful. I, I mean, I hadn't ever been to boarding school. I certainly had never had any, any experience of a religion like that and not the Catholic religion. And, uh, oh, God, it was dreadful. Um, but um, I was in a town where um, my pen friend was then living and her father at some business dinner, um, was well, it, it's in Reims, and you'll know this, because I ended up leaving the school. I mean, after about two weeks, I thought this is really not for me. And I got a job in the champagne cellars as um, a, a, a tour guide. Oh, delicious. <laughs> so I spent my time um, walking around, um, touring people around the champagne cellars, which was brilliant for my French. And I, had a, I rented a little room, and I gas, one gas ring, and a shared bathroom, and I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. I thought it was absolutely wonderful. My French got better and better. Uh, I met so many interesting people, and I was also, actually, I was very spoiled, I have to say. They were very kind to me, and they made much of me, and, you know, I was, I was, I was different, so it was, it was probably not very good because I really was spoiled, but it was very um, confidence-building, you know, really fun it was really fun and it was very good for my French of course it was only when I got back to college in the following October that I realized that I'd completely forgotten how to study because because you, you do you know at that age unless uh, by the time you left school you know what you think you know what you're doing but if you have an, a 10-month gap and you've got time to forget your study skills <laughs> anyway yeah. anyway I went back and I went to college in London and it was fine because it was 1964 so it was London in the 60s so that was absolutely fine you know it was really very exciting um although i had a student grant so i didn't have much money but i, I always made sure that uh, um i i really made sure that i had what my, i spent my money on was things like theater tickets and planning for travel abroad the next holidays i you know i, I spent i never went out for a meal i never paid for coffee i would take my own thermos 
uh, certainly never had an alcoholic drink right the way through because that would have been a terrible waste of money. So I was, I was very focused and frugal in the way I spent my money. And I didn't feel I was missing out because I was spending, you know, I was doing, saving it up for the things I wanted to do. And you have to remember, growing up as a, a war baby and um, with rationing, um, you don't think, you, you are naturally frugal you, and you find waste offensive before everybody turned green, you know, and went ecological. I've always found waste uncomfortable and offensive. And I think it's, there's an old adage that my grandfather used to often say, a fool and his money are soon parted. Mm. And I see behaviours around me that I think, well, you do what you like, but I really think that it's a silly way to live. It's so unrewarding. Looking back, Mm -hmm. if we look at the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s, those three blocks of time culturally are all very different. Oh, yes. It was like the world went through this fast forward of culture. And you lived through all three of those before you've even moved. Well, we get to the rest of your story where you move abroad um, for good. What? What influences were happening happening across these kind of three decades that were building up the, what do I want to call it? I could call it confidence because you've used that word, that helped you build up the confidence to then move away from your family and into a different culture deliberately. Well, I think it comes back to language, basically. I was always so excited when I could be speaking a different language with people because it doubles your universe instantly. Instantly, mm. and it opens up so many doors, and you can have so many more exciting experiences, and meet people, and have proper conversations with people. And I think I I just loved that, and I wanted more of that, and that's what led me to do it. I think. Um, but having well, I graduated from from London University with a degree in uh, an honours degree in French and Spanish, and then I thought, well, I'm now. Oh, I, oh, yes, I had another year in France as well. It, it was a three-year course, but you had the option of spending, uh, making a four-year course and, and spending the third year uh, in a French lycée somewhere in France attached to the local university as a, as a um, what's the word in English? Um, exchange student? No, not an exchange. No, it was a one-way thing. But I didn't have to pay. It, is it an audit? Do you audit the classes? Is that what you say? If you don't pay, but... And it's not really for record. It's just for experience. It's- yeah, auditing. You audit the class. I couldn't remember what it was in English. Uh, <laughs> well, this happens. Um, yeah, so I did that, and that was really funny. Be- and I was uh, sent to Dijon University. I was attached to Dijon University in Burgundy. Like the mustard? Yes. <laughs> no, Megan, you're supposed to say like the wine. <laughs> oh, sorry. In the United States, there's Dijon mustard, and there's a specific brand that had a very famous commercial uh-huh. when I was growing up. Right, it is a huge uh, traditional. Uh, I mean, the fields in the in the spring are bright yellow with mustard plants. Yes, absolutely. But so I was at Dijon University, but I was um, housed and fed and lodged, and I worked in uh, a lycée, another French lycée, so a secondary school, uh, which was in Gevrey Chambertin, which is the most expensive Burgundy wine on the, anybody's wine list. I mean, outrageously expensive. It's just outside Dijon, and it was just the village school. 
And that's where I was. And I taught the children of all these winemakers. And um, I was invited to their houses and, again, spoiled to death because it was quite exotic to have this English woman, this young English woman there. And, again, I had a really, really interesting time. And I knew then that I wanted to teach because I was only an assistante anglaise, which means that you sort of you fill in the gaps for the English teachers and you have a, you have a couple of fun hours a week with each class and you can do what you like. You know, you can, you can do fun things or you can support them. But it was really, um, I'd done a brief teacher training thing in Paris beforehand. And I, all, I knew when I was at school that I wanted to be a teacher because I loved school. I really did, right from the start, right from the age of five. Um, so that was a complete year, sort of a mixture between um, studying what I wanted to study at the university with very few obligations and teaching these these teenagers. And I thought this was absolutely wonderful. And then I went back to London, did my final year, got my degree and then thought I'm 24 because of failing the math thing. I'd done three years in one extra year in high school and then one extra year at the uh, university because I took this year out in France. I know I'm 23. I'm 23. I've been in a classroom all the time since I was five. It's time I started diversifying some skills. Yeah. So I signed up for a course at Westminster University, also in London, and I did um, a trilingual diploma for um, translating and editing, uh, which basically meant I learned to type, which has proved to be very useful. (laughs) (laughs) They never taught um, people who went to grammar schools how to type in Britain. And if you have any elderly British colleagues my age, you will notice that they type with two fingers because they were never taught, because that was a kind of manual thing, and it was beneath anybody who was going to university. You see, this is the uh-huh. this is the class ridden society, which I'm getting to, because <laughs> no, no, it, I can't wait. Oh dear. Um, no, the the thing about England is, you know, it's wonderful as long as you're on the right side of the tracks and as long as you can close your eyes to certain things. But the entitlement and the rigidity and the lack of social mobility was always something I really, really despised. I was aware of it from very early on and I hated it. And when I, I always sort of thought I'd end up abroad because when you're in a different culture, you're not so aware of these things that, uh, so you don't have, and you don't have to identify with them in the same fashion. Hmm. Freer uh, when I was speaking a different language. You know, the thing in, um, the Professor Higgins says in Pygmalion or in My Fair Lady, if you're more familiar with the musical, the moment he speaks, no, the moment an Englishman speaks, he makes another Englishman despise him. <laughs> it's a terrible, terrible thing. And I was always very, very aware of that because I happen to have a neutral accent because of where I was born. But is it true? Is that statement true? Oh, yes, absolutely. It, Britain is riddled with class anxiety. And your accent absolutely situates you. Ask anybody. Yeah. Uh, regional accents are, are more fashionable now than when I lived there. But you, you get, a, you know, one sentence in, you've got a label. Hmm. What the person does with that label is their own affair. But you are identified by the way you speak. And I always knew I hated that. Um, so that was the reason I wanted to get a diploma of something that would take me out of the country. So I did a translation and an interpreter's degree. And then I went on holiday and I, I met um, Vincent, my husband, in Italy. And that was basically what brought me to Belgium afterwards because um, I, well, we knew we wanted to, to, to be together. And so because he was just about to start his military service, it was brilliant timing. And he couldn't move, he couldn't get out of the country. So rather than him come to London or England, which wouldn't have made sense because A, I didn't really want to go on living there in any case. And B, um, he, he's, he's an artist and he'd studied art and he 
didn't speak as his English was nothing like as good as my French because I had a degree in it. So, and anyway, I wanted to move abroad. So, but I hadn't been planning on moving to Brussels because I, I obviously they speak French here as well as Flemish, but it's culturally and linguistically it's not the same as France, which was fine. You know, it's absolutely fine. But living in a French-speaking country was absolutely fine. Um, so, and also, I had met. Vincent, and we were corresponding. We, we had to write real letters with stamps on, you realise. <laughs> <laughs> I do know what those are, luckily. <laughs> I met a little girl the other day who didn't know that you had to lick an envelope. I thought it was so sweet. She didn't, oh. she didn't understand that. We wrote proper letters to each other. I have to ask, I have, do you have some of those letters still? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Good. I hope you keep them as long as you can and then give them to your children. Uh, no. <laughs> oh, oh, they're those kind of letters. <laughs> oh, so. <laughs> um, no, we do, we do have them. We do have them. Good. Yeah, but no, the other thing that happened that precipitated my coming uh, abroad was that my father died very suddenly. I think I mentioned that to you. You did. Your own piece. Um, and obviously it was a dreadful shock, but I didn't want to stay in the country because he wasn't there. Hmm. I, I, I really wanted to escape. Um, and I had a good reason to, because I was already sort of engaged to be married to a foreigner, so that was okay. And my mother was absolutely fine with it. She said, look, don't think you've got to stay here on my account. I should be absolutely fine. And I know that I knew she was right, and she was. And in fact, she she lived for quite a long time, and she was a, she was a widow for longer than she was a wife. And she mm. had a very interesting life. She was independent and happy and... Uh, you know, it all worked out fine. So I never felt guilty about uh, about leaving. I was going to say, I think you and I then are much more similar than I, I ever knew. Uh huh. Uh huh. Because I don't. I wouldn't say that my father's death is the reason I moved abroad because he died, and um, before I went to university. Yes. But I do think it's one of the reasons I didn't feel held back. Yeah. And my mother, very similar to yours, and not afraid to let us live our own life and make our own decisions. Yeah. And so I think those two things yeah. helped me move abroad and stay abroad. I think there's a lot of people who would love to do what we've done, yeah. but they do feel an obligation to stay. Yes, yes, I'm sure you're right. I, I listened to your, your your chat with your mother and that mm. sound, I thought, oh yeah, I recognize this strong-minded mother, <laughs> yes. <laughs> No, it's true. It, it comes. It comes through very clearly. And uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. We certainly do have that in common. That's, that's true. Yeah. So it's it's good to hear that your mom, because that was going to be one of my questions, that your mom said, "Go, do it." Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes, 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 absolutely. And she would come to visit uh, regularly, and we would go over once a year to see her, and uh, it, it all worked beautifully, you know. Uh, but it's. There, we were still writing letters every now and again when something urgent happened, we'd pick up the phone, but you just didn't. You just didn't. You know, it was expensive and you didn't do that. You wrote a letter. Hmm. We never got in, I mean, I must have called her perhaps three three times in the course of a year, but we wrote letters and that was that was fine. And she didn't expect anything else. She didn't expect anything else. Yeah. And she died before the era, the era of um, cell phones, so she never, you know, she never got that far either, so... But it was it was fine, you know. I wasn't worried about her. I wasn't worried about her, and she died very uh, quite quickly. She'd been extremely well for until about two weeks before her death, and she had a, a good death because my my sister is a she's a geriatric specialist, and she runs two care homes, and she took my mother in 
right at the end when she was suddenly went into a decline. But she didn't. She she never lost her autonomy. Basically, she was never dependent on anybody else, which she would have absolutely detested. So mm. she chose how to live and she chose how to die. Um, that was so. It's easy to be abroad in those circumstances. Yeah, I think I think the family that we have really does. I wouldn't say it dictates. Mm. But it does shape the experience we have if we're traveling and moving abroad, oh. or not even abroad, moving away from that community. Yes, yes. It could be, you know, moving to the other side of the country or down the coast, but yeah, yeah. It, it's, um, it is dependent on the people and the community that we're raised in Yes, that shape whether or not we say yes to opportunities. Yes, it is. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that was just the beginning. Part two of Sue's story is on its way with Balancing in Belgium. The politics, table manners, family connections, being a working mom, and more. A big thank you to Sue for sharing her story. I can't wait for you to hear the rest. Until then, I'm Megan Kitchen, and this was Balancing Cultures. Balancing Cultures.